Hi, and welcome to our podcast. I'm your host, Howard Drukarsh. I've been a successful realtor in Canada's largest market, Toronto, for over 30 years. And in the latter part of my career, I co-founded Canada's largest independent brokerage, Right at Home Realty, with a roster of over 5,800 agents and growing. In 2020, I retired to start this podcast, and it's been a remarkable opportunity to meet highly successful and fascinating guests in real estate and related fields to find out about their background and get their insight into our business. Today's guest is Jeff Hosworth. Jeff is vice chairman and head of North American business for Ferguson Partners. Jeff has a remarkable, uh, just a remarkable background in, in many different areas. Uh, and I think people will understand after this podcast what makes large real estate companies go, and it's someone like Jeff. So, Jeff, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me, Rod. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. I'm gonna I'm gonna begin, and I'm gonna let you do some additional comments once we uh, once I go through the the highlights of your career. But here here's what I liked. Um, Jeff's been in uh, for 25 years. He's been advising clients in boardrooms. Uh, around the world. So it's not just the Canadian situation. Um, he joined Ferguson Partners, which is a boutique uh, Chicago headquartered global real estate um, and infrastructure firm in 2018. Um, as I mentioned, he's vice chairman and head of North American business. Um, and as, and his uh, um, head office is in Toronto, uh, Canada. He also leads the firms, and this is the part that's fascinating we'll get into, he, the firm's CEO succession practice uh, participates both in board recruitment, advisory practice, and the PE slash REM practice, which you'll have to explain to me uh, once we get rolling. Um, he's spent 25 years with a company called uh, Spencer Stewart. And again, all of this is fascinating, conducting over 100 CEO searches globally, over 50 board uh, director searches and has developed a specialized expertise in telecommunications and real estate sectors. Um, he began his career by launching several businesses in retail and distribution um, and gained firsthand understanding of the demands facing CEO um, and uh, boards and senior executives. So it's, he comes from, from experience. Uh, there's more about Jeff. Um, he's been featured on BNN, Globe and Mail, uh, Research Money, Times of India, Top1000Funds.com in China, uh, the Australian CEO Forum. Uh, he's authorized studies in thought leadership uh, on executive leadership and succession. Um, he also, and this again we'll get into in a few minutes because I think this is really important to share, he's the chair of Second Harvest, the largest uh, food rescue organization in Canada, and previously um, uh, previously was a board member of Upopolis, a uh, private social utility that connects young hospital patients to their families, friends, and school networks to alleviate the isolation while in medical care. Jeff has a BA in economics from the University of Guelph. Go Griffins. <laughs> I, my daughter went to Guelph. They, they did win a few. Okay. So, okay. What did I leave out, Jeff? Oh, I think you covered it. I'm, uh, I'd like to know who this person is. Okay, well, the person's on our podcast tonight. So, and thank you. With all that, and you know, I always tell our guests, we try to keep it to 30 minutes because they're all very, um, you know, very busy, busy with their careers. Uh, and I, we appreciate the fact they set out time. So we're going to go through things to kind of dig a little bit into, into Jeff Hosworth. And then we'll, we will focus on Second Harvest because I, I know that's an important charity to you. And I it think is. it's important for us to share that with the audience. So we'll first start with Jeff. 
So before entering the executive search field, what, what were you doing prior to that? Which sounds like you've been doing it almost your whole life, but. Um, I was a failed entrepreneur multiple times. Okay. <laughs> you say, and, uh, you say it with it, great I experience. Mean, the saying is you, you learn more from your failures from, than from your successes. And <clears throat> I learned a lot at a very early age. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree with you. You know, um, uh, in in starting the company that I did, uh, lots of mistakes along the way. But that's that's a part of growth, right? I mean, it it is. Yeah, it so. is. It's just you don't want to make the same mistake twice. Right. That that part's the part of growth you for sure don't want to repeat. <laughs> Correct. Uh, so when you decided to enter the search field, what was it that got you interested in that? You know, it's a great question, and I would tell you that. Um, about out of all the people I know in the search industry around the world, no one plans to go into search. Hmm. Everybody falls into it um, for a variety of different reasons. But I would also say that everyone I know who has fallen into it is extremely grateful and very happy they did because as one of my a former CEOs said to me, we become part of this special secret club where we get a view on the a front row seat uh, of, of the issues around the world. And it is, um, I mean, you're, you're continuously learning. It's, it, it, it is, it's an amazing industry, but again, no one graduates with an MBA thinking they're going to go into executive search because it is, Howard, it's, it's largely misunderstood. But it's fascinating when you can, when you can find a career that you end up enjoying, right? I mean, <clears throat> well, it's, um, it's, it's one life to live, so you better yeah. you better enjoy it. And if you don't, who's the fool? That's a good point. So so Ferguson Partners Canada, um, which is kind of how you and I connected through that, um, focuses on the real estate industry. Can you kind of outline a bit about, although we'll get into it, um, what part of the real estate industry and and um, and is that the same as in the U.S. with Ferguson Partners? So in, in Canada, um, when you look at our, our clientele, where we tend to spend the most of the time, uh, in large part because we're global, are the real estate arms of the pension funds. Mm-hmm. So whether it be Cadillac, Fairview, Oxford, Ivanhoe, Cambridge, and Quadreal, CPPIB, uh, Hoop, um, OP Trust, we tend to work a lot for those blue chip organizations, those blue chip pension fund sponsored real estate organizations. And they have been, I mean, the Canadian pension systems are held in really high regard around the world. And so when they are looking to expand and they all have expanded their real estate operations outside of Canada. So when they're looking to expand to build an office in whether it's London, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, Sydney, that's usually where we get involved because we have a, a, a global capability. We do less work for REITs. Um, I would say though in the United States, we do a lot more work for REITs because they're a much more dominant part of the real estate sector. We do a lot of work for family offices that are heavily vested in, in real estate. Uh, the pension system, and I don't wanna be disparaging uh, the pension systems in the United States are not anywhere near as successful as the Canadian pension systems globally. So that would be that would be our primary stakeholder. Mm-hmm. Again, 
global global clients with global needs. Okay. Um, so so the field, I mean, as you said, it's fascinating. In terms of coming into a field and learning about it, what are the kind of the top lessons that, that you've learned by being uh, in the executive search field? Uh, it's really... Um, it's really a study in, in, in people and, and leadership. And first of all, the real estate industry is fantastic uh, because the executives are, the world can be falling apart and they see the opportunity. So very, very optimistic uh, individuals. And I've had a number of discussions just recently where many executives are really looking forward to when distressed assets come on the market. And so they can, uh, swoop in with with capital and uh, and take advantage of those assets and, and repurpose them. So um, it's a very optimistic uh, sector. What what I've learned with great leaders is that they embrace obstacles. They don't run away from them. And the, the beauty is, if you embrace an obstacle, you'll see things that you wouldn't have otherwise seen and it is it sounds like a simple thing but you know taking the easy way out is rarely the the right way to to, to do things um i've learned that and I, I think this is probably more true in canada than it would be in some other parts of the world but howard you could spend 30 years building your reputation as being a forthright honorable honest, transparent individual, but you can, you can tear that reputation down quickly by making a wrong choice in terms of values or what have you. So I would say if I sort of the net net on that is, you know, really successful leaders that I meet are, are passionate. It's the art of the possible. And I would say, and there's many others, but they're ambitious for their team and the purpose. And they're not, they're ambitious for themselves because to be a CEO, you have to be ambitious, mm -hmm. but they're ambitious for others. And I think that is, I think that's a, a, a tried and true um, uh, capability or, or strength that most leaders have, that, that most strong leaders have. <laughs> but there are a lot of leaders who don't have that. So, so in, your, in your practice, um, I mean, obviously you get to, to see top, top leaders. I mean, you know, you're, you're at the top end. So your, your, um, uh, your list of people you know must be quite fascinating <laughs> at this stage. Well, well, it is, and it's um, it, it is because you, you, as a search consultant, you learn a lot from everybody, and you get to become if if you reach a certain elevation in the search business, you become a trusted advisor. And so, when you think about a CEO uh, of a public company, they've got a chair, and there has to be a bit of daylight between the CEO and the chair. Uh, you've got a board of directors. Um, and you've got to have a distance between them because they're there for counterbalance. And then you have the executive team who reports into the CEO 
who largely lives in an echo chamber. And so a lot of the leaders don't have a safe place to go. Mm. And so in our business, if you get to that rarefied air where a CEO will call you and say, can you just come over and have a cup of coffee with me? Mm-hmm. And Howard, it may have nothing to do with leadership. It's just, and it's, it's a privilege because they'll ask you a question and it may not be the answer they want, but if you've achieved that rarefied air, it gives you permission to be utterly, completely honest. And that is, and then I've, I've been in those situations where the CEO paused for a second. And I went, oh, no, this is going to go wrong or go south. But they said, you know what? You're right. Um, because when, you, when you're in an echo chamber with your executive team, they're playing back what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. So to your point, Jeff, about a leader's job, um, nobody gets to that rarefied level without, in my opinion, is having a really good um, EQ, emotional um, intelligence that, you know, that they, they know how to understand people. They know how to work with different personalities. And like, um, like most leaders, they, they are able to get the respect of the organization because I don't think it matters if you're in name only the leader. But if you don't have the respect and, and people will put in what it takes to move from level to level to, to improve, it isn't going to work. So, you know, I, I, I really think to your point about being able to talk to people over a coffee or not necessarily about what, what's going on in their business. I mean, the, uh, uh, the respect they must have to just have you in their world and, and enjoy I guess I'd call it a friendship, right? Because at that point, they're not asking you to help them find, uh, you know, more people in, in their uh, business. They're, they're just needing someone to use the language that, you know, has been around a while. It's lonely at the top. Like you're not, if you're CEO, you're not going to talk to, you know, one of the board members or executive team about another person. You, you, you have no. no one to talk to, right? So so good for you for having that. I mean, it's fast. I, I always thought what you're doing is fascinating Anyway, although I didn't know as much about it um, until I met you, but um, and I think people will get from this podcast how important uh, the role you play in helping companies not only survive but thrive because people change and people leave and things happen and you've got to have succession, right? You've got to have some way to keep the ball rolling uh, when those things happen. And obviously that's your expertise. Um, no, no, it's a, it's a, it's a great point. And succession itself is, um, it's a fascinating topic because of the theater that takes place in a boardroom. Um, <laughs> I've, I've had, I've been in some situations around the world where I've, I've never seen two CEO succession projects that were the same. Well, and there's a lot, and, and there's a lot at stake because yes. if a board gets it wrong, you can destroy enterprise value. Right. If a board gets it right, you can create enterprise value. And let's say it's a pension fund and you've got all of these pensioners who've worked 30, 40 years and you put their livelihood at risk because of a failed CEO succession, the responsibility right. is enormous. I would think that if we talk about pension funds, they are more than just 
the economics of, to your point, the economics of being successful, there's, there's a responsibility that goes beyond that. I mean, it's, it's not like you're dealing with shareholders at Ford or something like that, right? And no, so, you're, you're, yeah. you're, you are a steward of their quality of living, mm-hmm. right? Because they were made a promise that if they worked 30 or 40 years, and it's a defined pension plan, that they would be taken care of is the wrong word. But that, to your point, is unlike a public company with uh, shareholders. If you don't get it right, and the way the pension systems work in the world, especially in Japan, which is the oldest society in the world, where you have fewer and fewer people working, supporting more and more people who are retired, you've got to get it right. And if you don't have the right succession in place, it can be a disaster. Mm-hmm. So to to the point of how important is this role, it's critical. <laughs> I mean, and most people don't recognize, I, I think they don't understand. They certainly would understand, uh, as you said, public corporations, you know, the shareholders, shareholder meetings. Uh, but the pension fund world is something most people don't deal with at the level you do, uh, right. other than they may have, you know, they may have a pension at stake. And I, I think they just rely on good advice, uh, good decisions. By, yes. by the people running that pension. So th- this leads to a question that I, uh, there's two questions here that I wanted to ask you because I think they tie into how, how someone's been successful. And, and in, in your case, what's the greatest advice that anyone ever gave you? The greatest advice somebody's given me, um, I guess there's a few as it relates to this industry, there, there, a few come to mind. One is, is that in what, what I do is that you have to connect with people at a human level because that's what it is. Um, but a nice thing about, and that's horrible to say, a nice thing about COVID because with all the tragedy around the world, most conversations, and I'm sure you had this too, most conversations that you started it with was, How's your family doing? Is everybody safe? Is everybody healthy? Mm-hmm. It almost became, business became more human. Mm-hmm. And so someone said to me at the beginning, connect on a human level. Um, and I tell that to people who I recruit uh, into Ferguson or Spencer Stewart around the world. Take the time to get to know the human being. Uh, number, number two would be, and this is, this is, this was a, it, it, it resonated with me, but it became, it became evident why it was true is that, you know, we live in such a short term, a short termism world, if that's a word. And someone said, Jeff, you know, you're going to meet somebody when you're 25 in the search business. They may be a client, a candidate, a reference. In the future, there'll be a, a father or a mother that have children and they would like some career advice. And so, Look, look at it from a 30 year perspective, hmm. not a five year perspective. And Howard, that is, that's been sort of a guiding light. And I would attribute that again, it's, it wasn't my idea, but I, I attribute that to the longevity of the relationships I have 
and what those relationships have enabled me to do in the not-for-profit sector. So it, it's the long game that matters. And it's and again, you know this given the business you, you were in. Um, that emotional connection, you know, you mentioned EQ. Like EQ was was always important. Um, but EQ capability now is more important than it was pre-COVID. And I just I gave a talk at Intercare and it was that covered the topic was uh leadership post-COVID. And you know, for executives to connect with their employees on a one-to-one basis and be sincerely interested about their well-being and, and caring, those have become more important. So the EQ, I mean, when you think about it 30 years ago, you had org structures that enabled you to achieve things. The, the org structure means nothing anymore, uh, especially to the younger generation, because uh, they're driven by by purpose. But uh, emotional intelligence is very, very, very important. And it's, I don't think it's something you can learn. I think you've either got it or you, or you don't, because the worst thing to do is pretend you have EQ and it's not sincere and everybody could see through that. I, I couldn't agree more. Of all the things that I've learned in my business career, to the point that you made, Jeff, you can't fake it. <laughs> you can't pretend I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about how you're doing. But you're just saying because you know that's what you should be saying. I think there is there's a there's just a weird, uh, inexplicable inexplicable thing that happens when someone believes it. And you you know, and I don't know how you know some people have and some people don't. I listen to other podcasts, and what you've said is it's consistent in every business podcast I've listened to. How important EQ is now, and and uh, it's just a different generation than it was. It is, you know, and, and within that, Howard, there's empathy, there's vulnerability. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I was at a session in Chicago and with this leadership consultant and um, he had revealed something about himself, which was quite, quite emotional. And, and then he went around the audience and asked them questions. And I went up to him afterwards and said, had you not revealed yourself? no one else would have revealed themselves. Yeah. No, I think, you know, it's a, it, to me, this is all very fascinating. I'm, you know, I, I was really looking forward to have you as a guest because I, I think what we're sharing here is, is a lifestyle, um, um, a chance to learn about business at a level most people would never know. So Jeff, the question, you know, I, I like to ask people, um, because everybody has a different answer on this, is what's their biggest success in business? Um, and in your field, um, it's going to be an interesting answer. So, so Jeff, what is what you consider your biggest success? So on the commercial side, um, I've been involved with recruiting not only the CEO, but pretty much the entire executive team. And there's two examples where those organizations were performing okay, but from a percentile perspective, weren't in the 90th or 95th percentile. And as a result of being able to put together the teams, those organizations have gone on to be some of the best performing companies within their industry when you benchmark them globally. Mm. Uh, 
number of them went on to be the, some of the best dividend paying stocks in, in the country. So that is, that's very gratifying. Um, the other one, I'll give you an example where it's, I'll never forget this one. Uh, I was doing a CEO succession project for a company in Australia and there were two uh, succession candidates uh, who were internal candidates. And the way the board was set up, it was skewed. The board would normally nominate one person because of the number of people that would be positively impacted by that person being appointed. The second person was less likely to win for a whole host of reasons. But the first person, there were some issues with that person, um, which I wasn't able to share, but I was able to ask a few questions of the directors. And it was like 12 angry men. We were in a room for the entire day. <laughs> and as they went out to deliberate, I asked the outgoing CEO, can I just make a comment? And he said, yes. And I said to the group, don't vote with your wallet. Mm. And they came back two hours later and made the choice uh, that proportionally should not have been made, but was, and it was the right one. Mm. That person went on to run the business Australia and now is based in Singapore and is running all of Southeast Asia. So I feel very, it would have been easier not to say that mm -hmm. um, because I would have gotten people offside, but it wouldn't have been honest. And then the last one is by being in the search business uh, and having relationships at the CEO level, I've been able to raise a lot of, and participate in raising a lot of capital. Um, and it's quite funny when you call a CEO and said, I need, we have a capital campaign of $30 million. And they say, Jeff, well, what about a hundred? And I could say, well, how about $300,000? <laughs> right. And there's a bit of humor there, right. but I know they have a $5 million not-for-profit budget. Uh, had I not been an executive search, I wouldn't have had permission to ask for those donations for worthy causes. And so at the end of the day, I hope my boss is not going to watch this podcast. If I, if, if it was, the, if someone was writing my obituary, they said, you know, Jeff got the most reward from helping out those who were less fortunate because of the relationships he built over a 30 year period. Well, if I was your boss, I'd be proud. So um, I think that's a, that's a real, human way to look at life and, and, and business in life. Um, I'm going to move to the, to the last part of the discussion with you is your role as chair of Second Harvest, which I don't think people may know. It's the largest food rescue organization in Canada. Uh, I know you're passionate about it. So let's talk about that as uh, uh, the last part of our interview with you. So just a little bit of a segue, how I got involved in Second Harvest. Um, I was living in India where <clears throat> food insecurity is rampant for obvious reasons. And you can almost understand why it is that way in India. When I came back to Canada and it was so much, so much more prominent for me uh, that how can in a country like Canada, can there be people 
who don't know where their next meal is coming from. When you think of our agricultural capacity. So a friend of mine asked me to join the board. Um, and I went on a, they asked me to go on the truck where you rescue the food and distribute the food to food kitchens to 256 agencies in Toronto. And when I saw those people who didn't know where they were getting their next meal, where I saw single mothers not being able to feed their children, it was just, it just, it, it couldn't be possible. And so I got involved with Second Harvest, uh, thoroughly enjoyed it, uh, continue to enjoy it. We had sort of a, um, a milestone where it was put to the board. We rescue enough food to provide 22,000 meals a day, nutritious meals, hmm. so perishables. Um, and I'd say to the board, how many more people can we feed and how much more food is there to rescue? And they said, Jeff, we can double that. So when during COVID, we raised almost $30 million, uh, bought a facility on the East Mall, oh and have doubled our capacity and now rescue enough food to produce 44,000 meals a day across the country. Wow. And the challenge is with inflation, um, cost of food going up, food insecurity is gonna become more systemic than it is now. And for the first time, Howard, where we would normally get donations of food, we're having to purchase food to distribute wow. um our goal would be not to exist mm -hmm. uh, but uh, regrettably that's unlikely in the near future but it is it's an amazing group of, uh leadership team Lori nickel is the ceo who is is sought out from around the world as an expert in food insecurity so it is it's hard to it's hard to describe when you, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I've never worried where my next meal was coming from. Uh, think about how many people in this country and around the world don't know where their next meal is coming from. I think it's, uh, it, I think it's great that, that we have you as a guest. I think it's great that we got to the charity. And what's left is to let people know if they want to get involved with Second Harvest, how would they do that? Uh, just Google us at uh, foodrescue.com. Okay. Uh, please make a donation. Okay. Um, I don't know the exact math, but a donation of $50 can provide, I think, 15 to 20 meals to someone who would otherwise not get the meals. And when you just to, a little segue there, and, and you know this, Howard, is if children don't get nutrition at a young age, their ability to learn is diminished dramatically. Their physical capacity and capability is diminished. And so, you know, getting micronutrients at a young age is, is so important. Um, so it's, um, do I want to say it's all about the children? That's why I'm doing this. I think that's not a bad reason. Let's just repeat again the website uh, for someone who wants to donate. Just um, secondharvest.com or foodrescue.ca. Second Harvest is the, the umbrella organization. 
foodrescue.ca is where we're in every province across the country and we coordinate the delivery rescue and delivery of food but in, in a different manner but both both are anybody who can donate as little as they can would be massively appreciated by those who are in need all right well jeff first off thank you for the time secondly thank you for struggling with a sore throat which i know as as a podcast podcast host can be the biggest problem for for uh being on camera and we'd love to have you back again so um uh, thank you for taking the time I, I know you're a very busy guy and i think our viewers know how busy you are and we really appreciate your time and your insight into not only recruiting but into the charity of second harvest we appreciate well, it. I, I appreciate you asking me because it's um, anytime I can talk about Second Harvest, I'll go anywhere, anytime to talk about it. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. All, all the best, Jeff. Take care. We'd like to thank Jeff Hosworth and you for joining us. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please like, comment, and subscribe on your favorite podcast network or on our YouTube channel. And to get in touch with us, you can do it one of two ways either by email at info at rewithhd.com or on our website, rewithhd.com. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.